0: Hello and welcome to The Pioneers, brought to you in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet initiative. I'm Georgina Godwin. This series explores some of the most innovative ideas in science, technology, conservation, medicine and beyond that are making the world we live in a better place. Mark Kendall was going to be a rocket scientist, but during his studies he found himself drawn to biological science, in particular immunology. Harnessing his physics knowledge into the medical sphere, Kendall has become one of the forefront inventors in the realm of vaccinations. His creation is called the nanopatch a small piece of technology that could revolutionise the way that vaccinations are given, particularly in developing countries where immunisation is reliant on refrigeration, which often isn't readily available. In 2012, Mark Kendall received the Rolex Award for Enterprise, which helped develop his groundbreaking research and entered him into the network of laureates that we've been celebrating across this series. Now based in Brisbane, Kendall does much of his research in nearby Papua New Guinea. And today I speak to him about why the vaccination needs rethinking and whether the nanopatch could eradicate some diseases within a lifetime.
1: So the nanopatch is a needle-free vaccine delivery patch. So I've mapped the skin's immune system uh, and found that all you need to do is place vaccine just a hair's width a little bit further than that, but into the skin uh, that the needle entirely misses, the needle places vaccine into muscle and designed the device from the ground up uh, to place vaccines there. So uh, that's a short summary of what the, the nanopatch is, but there's obviously a little bit more to it than that.
0: In what ways is this a preferable vaccination method compared to what's been used already? And what are the current issues with vaccinations? One thing that's really
1: interesting is, uh, so I'm I'm an engineer and love inventing things, and uh, if you take a step back and look at uh, the needle and syringe as a technology, uh, it's been around a very long time. So a Scotsman invented it in 1853 uh, uh, over there in Scotland. And Uh, It hasn't really changed that much since then. So the original patent, if you looked at it now, you'd instantly recognise it. There's been very little change. Yet that's the delivery method for most vaccines. And so it's almost an afterthought, uh, the, the delivery method. So work hard to create a new vaccine, put it inside a needle and syringe at the end and inject it. Now, today's vaccines are a success story. It's important to emphasise that. It's also important to emphasise that they are a technology as well. And after clean water and sanitation, uh, the, the one technology that's contributed the most to uh, uh, humanity's lifespan is is vaccines. You might be thinking, well, what's the, the problem then uh, if vaccines are, are there and effective and working so well? And the, the problem uh, is that... Um, like any technology, there's room for improvement. And in this particular case, there's still about 14 million deaths per year due to infectious disease, and the bulk of those take place in the developing world in low-resource regions. And the challenges there that uh, really played out with the needle and syringe are um, uh, the, the cold chain. Uh, so the vaccine is wet, uh, in a wet form, and needs refrigeration. Uh, you need to be a trained practitioner to use it because it's a sharp, uh, object. And also on top of that, uh, vaccines, uh, well, when you put, place vaccine into a needle and put it into muscle, uh, you're missing uh, what immunologists call the immune sweet spot, which is within the skin. Uh, if you can exploit the skin's immune system, you can make vaccines work a lot better. So that's what the, the nanopatch is about. It's about exploiting that, that system, that spot. Uh, So it's a way of removing the cold chain because uh, the vaccine is dry rather than wet. Uh, That's important. It's needle free, so you don't necessarily need to be a trained practitioner. And on top of that, uh, because the vaccine is placed uh, to the special sorts of cells within the skin that the needle misses entirely, they're called antigen presenting cells, uh, you've got the chance for making vaccines work a lot better from an immune response point of view than uh, many of today's vaccines do.
0: I mean, what's really fascinating is that you don't come at this from me- a medical background at all, and you've used your first career as, as a rocket scientist to redesign this technology. Tell me how one translates into the other.
1: Great question. Uh, so how does a rocket scientist help improve vaccines or indeed work in medical devices uh, in general uh, which is what i've now been doing for about the last 22 years some of it's by chance and some of it's by design uh, so the chance part of it is uh, a two-minute conversation that changed everything so uh, back a long time ago in, in the previous uh, decades even in the previous century uh, so in the late 90s i was just finishing my phd in rockets and uh, had a, a position lined up to go to Caltech to continue to work on rockets, a post-doc position there. And uh, so many of, many of us have watched uh, the, the Big Bang Theory, and that's what Caltech's famous for. That's, but, of course, Caltech is famous for rockets as well. It's one of the, the meccas for rockets. And I had gave a presentation at a conference, and uh, a chap came up to me and said, I really enjoyed your presentation. I have this idea to use rockets to fire vaccines into the skin, would you like to come and work with me? And I found that really interesting. Uh, I had two questions. Uh, the first was, uh, uh, where where is it? And he said, at Oxford University. And the second was, would I get a chance to row? And he said, if you're good enough. And I, sa- I said, okay, I'm in. Now, of course, there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, it's not trivial to get into Oxford, but, uh, what I found fascinating uh, was the idea of turning it all on its head, and instead of working on the classical application of rockets, which despite what we try to dress it up as, uh, it tends to be killing machines, uh, turning it all around and using rockets to fire vaccines into the skin, uh, dry particle vaccines in the skin, uh, as devices to keep people alive. So that was my entry points into it. Uh, so I arrived at Oxford uh, as a youngish uh, lecturer uh, there and spent eight years at Oxford uh, contributing to that narrative and uh, was by no means the founder or, nor the, the the original inventor. That was Brian Bellhouse, but worked with Brian and co-developed uh, that um, what's called the gene gun, which is a real-life Star Trek device. And one of the things that was fascinating in that journey uh, when I was there at Oxford was... Um, well, there's a few, but one was, of course, there was the excellence that one expects at a place like Oxford, uh, so the, the teaching, the college life and, and so on. That was wonderful. But it was that apprenticeship in, in learning how to take ideas forward and how to explore interdisciplinary problems, how to patent ideas and how to take them forward commercially because the only way they'll get out there uh, and be, be used in, uh, in society is, is through that route. So it was that exposure to that that adventure, which uh, I was wonderful. And another part that's uh, quite uh, interesting from that learning was the hard part was not the, the rocket science. The hard part was the biology. Uh, so there's so many more questions about the way skin works and the way uh, the immunology of the skin works, which I started to find interesting and fascinating. And I started getting a little bit... Um, sceptical of uh, the, the explanations I was receiving from the, the biologists uh, on this. And to be fair to biologists, it's, it's a tough, tough area. So encouraged by my uh, colleagues at, at my college there at Oxford, I started learning immunology to just get, get my head around that. And, um, and that started opening up other doors.
0: I mean, it's extraordinary. You've had to then develop an entirely new skill set to do this.
1: It is, and um, in my mind it's quite linear, uh, so the way the way uh, good engineers tend to think is um, tackle the problem at hand, uh, and if um, you don't have the skill set for it, uh, either assemble that around you and the team, or, or learn it, uh, or, or a combination of both. Uh, so I have a, a curious mind, and um, I'm interested in the fundamentals on, on how things work, so um, uh, I, I found I found that really interesting. And yes, yes it's, it's, to be clear, it's very different. Immunology is very different, say, to fluid mechanics. And that was what I was teaching when I was at Oxford. So I found I'd give a lecture in fluid mechanics and then get on my bicycle and then go and attend uh, a lecture in immunology. And you could, I could really feel like a different part of my brain kicking in.
0: A few Rolex laureates who are working in the field of medicine started out in another science, as you did. Do you think that that's often the case? That inventors come from cross practice backgrounds.
1: I think I think you're right. Uh, it can potentially be a game changer because you're coming from you're an interloper, and you're a field hopper. And so, uh, you're, when you're with acting within a field and continue to be, you can develop often. Unconscious biases, uh, so accept received wisdom uh, in areas that uh, you, you may otherwise challenge. If you're fearless enough to ask the, the questions that may come across as the, the dumb questions, when you come in as an interloper, I think you, sometimes you have more license to do that. And um, yes, I, I think I think you're right. Uh, of course, uh, great innovations and inventions take place from people within a given field for sure, uh, but. Um, it does seem to be a special place reserved for the, the, the field hoppers.
0: And of course, uh, helping you achieve this is is Rolex. You were made a Rolex Laureate in 2012. What has that done for your research, for your career development and for this project in particular?
1: Oh, I think the impact of the the Rolex Award for Enterprise has been huge. So back in 2012, uh, the narrative with the the, the nano Patch was... Um, a good scientific foundation uh, in place, uh, which which is which is great, and proven in the the lab environment, but it had the potential to be deployed in the developing world in low resource settings, but didn't wasn't resourced for that. And the Rolex Award uh, opened that door and allowed me to go to Papua New Guinea and, for the first time, apply the NanoPatch in developing world settings. And that then uh, led to a momentum, or indeed you could argue a chain reaction, a good one, that in in time opened the door with the World Health Organization and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as well. So what's happened since then is uh, clinical trials have been taking place with the nanopatch. The World Health Organization has funded it uh, to a good sum. So has uh, Bill Gates himself and his foundation Uh, to help tackle important diseases like uh, eradicating polio and and also uh, measles eradication. So the work is is going forward. And uh, I doubt that that stream, that whole stream of of activity will be taking place if uh, the Rolex funding uh, had not come into play.
0: Because, I mean, it's not just money, is it? It's it's access to other scientists and, and people helping you develop your ideas.
1: It's a source of encouragement. It's not easy uh, doing what we do. There's a lot of setbacks. Uh, you, you need to work through a lot of no's to get a yes. And it was wonderful to get that encouragement from uh, the Rolex Award and start to become part of a cohort of um, other Rolex laureates. And uh, so really it's a uh, it's an amazing cohort of inspiring individuals and it's a privilege to be part of that. And uh, we see each other in different forums and from time to time. And it's a great top-up of like-minded, entrepreneurial, big idea, big picture, but also doers. And uh, I find that inspiring. And and also uh, adding to that, I think um, having the Rolex Award for Enterprise gave me the encouragement to set up this enterprise that I'm, I'm doing now, which is Wear Optimo. And uh, so that's a, a biotechnology skunkworks. It's a it's an enterprise backed by the Australian National University, but other sources of private investment. But it's all about a fast, nimble, uh, high level, high performing team pushing forward one medical innovation after the next and doing it quickly and kind of breaking out from some of the traditional and sometimes restrictive structures. And our focal point there is the next generation. It's the leap forward, even beyond the nanopatch, which is. Uh, uh, wearable devices for precision medicine uh, and our core technology is called the, the micro wearable and it opens up the prospect by gaining access to all manner of signals by just going heads within the skin that others can't reach that um, can really change health like a device that can uh, detect continuously what's taking place in your heart there's a chemical that's released during a heart attack called troponin and it's the idea is that it can detect the early onset of a heart attack even before you know it's taking place and it's allowing uh, interventions for those sorts of diseases.
0: Uh, now, this work started in in, uh, in Oxford, in, in Britain. You're based in Australia. You spend a lot of time in Papua New Guinea. Uh, why? How did your work take you there?
1: Here in uh, Australia, uh, our closest neighbour is Papua New Guinea. We have vaccines that... Uh, are used routinely in Australia that are just not used at all in Papua New Guinea because they're considered too expensive as a case in point. Uh, So I feel a responsibility to to act upon that. That's our closest neighbour and that's why I've gone to Papua New Guinea to uh, conduct that work.
0: It's a really interesting time to be talking about vaccinations and preventing diseases because of course the world is facing a coronavirus crisis. As someone working in the field, do things like that affect your work? Are people like you called upon? Is there something perhaps that your technology could do to stop what's beginning increasingly to look like a pandemic?
1: Great question. Uh, so, yes, um, it's a tragic thing that's playing out in front of us with coronavirus. And one thing that's that I find interesting about it is that... Um, you know, at first, when this, this starts to play out, is that people say, "Well, I don't understand what the problem is." There's less people dying from coronavirus right now compared to the global deaths, say, to a, an influenza, um, just standard seasonal influenza. But the point is, is that there's no vaccine uh, for coronavirus at this stage, and so much is not known about the the physiology uh, of the bio, our, our responses to the coronavirus. So. We don't have built-in immunity for the coronavirus. So uh, there's the massive risk of what the potential is with the coronavirus, what curve it may take if it takes hold and becomes uh, widespread, which is starting to appear to be the case. So time is the enemy. Uh, There's a concerted effort globally to make vaccines as quickly as possible. Uh, Virologists are working on it. Vaccinologists are working on it, and and many other uh, organisations are, including the World Health Organisation. So, uh, yes, um, people are helping uh, where they can. But um, it's um, it's it's a pretty difficult time right now.
0: Uh, Mark, how easy is it to introduce a new piece of technology into the world of medicine?
1: It's not easy. Uh, So the the world of medicine is. quite conservative and there's a lot of good reasons for that so there's there's things that are considered to be working, why change it? And there's inertia, there's inertia in the system as well. Uh, with any change there's a, a cost that takes place and uh, who bears the cost uh, in, in making that happen? Uh, so it's just as much a, a psychological matter as, as it is a, a financial matter. Uh, so in doing it, I, I've, I've observed how it's happened before in other cases. Uh, and in the end, it's quite simple. Um, you need your champions. For anything to change, you need your champions. You need someone that's really uh, wanting to be at the spearhead and take, take on uh, some, some risk, uh, but to really champion the cause. But that seems to be how change works in general, whether it's in medical devices or whatever the other sphere may be, whether it's society. So it's not easy, uh, but uh, certainly worth the effort.
0: And I mean, obviously, the dream must be for this to become a mainstream piece of technology uh, to be used in in medicine. But practically speaking, what are your realistic hopes for the nanopatch just in the next year or two? What's the immediate future hold for for your tech?
1: So I think uh, the the immediate future of the next couple of years for the the nanopatch is for it to keep progressing on that uh, pathway towards rollout. Uh, for use in vaccination uh, more broadly than how it is currently, which is currently it's, it's going through clinical trials and product development, uh, but it's not in uh, broad rollout yet. So I'd like to see uh, significant progress on that front, uh, whether it's done, whether it's the broad rollout begins in the next couple of years or, or so, uh, it's difficult to say, but um, I'd like to see that uh, timeline compressed and, and brought brought closer.
0: And finally, Mark, will nanopatch mean that polio, measles, perhaps other diseases, will be eradicated in your lifetime?
1: I think it can help. I think the nanopatch uh, will serve an important part of that story. Uh, so I've learnt in vaccines uh, that the reasons why something isn't working are usually complex. Uh, and more than just a, a technology alone, but the the attributes that the nanopatch offers uh, helps address many of the uh, the limitations of of current approaches for uh, polio eradication and also other disease eradication. So, I think there's the potential there that um, the status quo at the moment of the needle and syringe uh, for vaccination can be uh, transposed across to uh, something like uh, the nanopatch. And that, that'll be wonderful if it is.
0: That was Mark Kendall, a 2012 Rolex Laureate. We'll be back next week with more insights from some fascinating people with groundbreaking ideas. I'm Georgina Godwin, and The Pioneers is produced by Holly Fisher for Monocle 24.